Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Uh, welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown here in Langley, British Columbia, and in Vancouver is my good pal Matthew Stockton. Hello, Matthew. Looking out the window again, distracted. I think we're going to switch it up next week. And when you go, I'm Mike Brown, and I'm going to break in and go, and I'm Matthew Stockton. <laughs> well, there isn't anything next week because it's Christmas time and we're taking a couple of weeks off. Slacker. Slacker? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be actually doing a lot of writing and some an interview for our 300th episode, which is the first one that drops in the new year. So I'm looking forward to that one. And um, I had half of an episode written for January. Uh, we might as well share this with everyone. And yeah. Ended up spilling an entire cup of coffee on my laptop. Yeah. Took it to the Mac store and was told that it should just be buried because it's completely dead. So I lost the script. Oh, boy. I know. But anyway, I mean, you know, such is life. This stuff happens. Live and learn, as they say. As he drinks coffee over his laptop. <laughs> as he drinks coffee and spills it on his new laptop. Do not. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor its parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. Rather than a satirical story for this, our seventh Christmas episode, which drops in our regular feed on Christmas Day, we thought we'd change things up this year and tackle a bit of holiday-related true crime. In this episode, we delve into a grim chapter of criminal history from Winnipeg, focusing on a figure whose actions left lasting scars on the community. We're talking about the man infamously known as the Yuletide Bandit, for his part in several robberies in the lead-up to the holidays over a number of years. 
His criminal career, predominantly in the late 1990s and early 2000s, was marked by meticulous planning and reckless endangerment of his victims. The crook's choice of the holiday season for his heists, a time synonymous with joy and family, added a particularly callous note to his series of robberies, making his nickname all the more ironic and disheartening. Though the robbers' targets were banks and armored vehicles, his methods were far from victimless. His actions often involved the use of firearms, putting lives at risk, and leaving physical and psychological scars on those who encountered him. In one particularly harrowing robbery at Winnipeg's Polo Park Mall, Christmas shoppers had to dive for cover during a shootout between this man and a security guard. His eventual takedown after a tense 12-hour standoff during which he took a former girlfriend hostage was as dramatic as the rest of his spree. Police had in custody Michael David Cernick, a well-read 32-year-old who was nowhere on their radar for the crimes. In exploring the tale of Michael Cernick, we're reminded of the real impact of crime on victims and communities, especially as his left a stain on a time of year meant for joy and peace. This is Dark Poutine Episode 299, Holiday 2023, Winnipeg's Yuletide Bandit. Over the course of this show, we've not spent much time in the province of Manitoba or its capital, Winnipeg, so we're hoping to start to remedy that here. Before European settlers arrived, the area where Winnipeg now stands was inhabited by indigenous peoples including the Cree, Ojibwe, Dene, Sioux, and Assiniboine. The region was a trading center for indigenous nations due to its strategic location at the confluence of the Red and Assiniboine rivers. The arrival of European traders and explorers in the 18th century marked a significant change. The French explorer La Vérendrye visited the area in the 1730s. Winnipeg's location made it a key trading post in the burgeoning fur trade dominated by companies like the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company. The Red River settlement, established by Scottish philanthropist Lord Selkirk in 1812, was one of the earliest European settlements in the area. The settlement laid the foundation for Winnipeg, officially incorporated in 1873, shortly after the Canadian Confederation in 1867. Winnipeg experienced rapid growth in the early 20th century, becoming a significant transportation and economic hub due to its central location. This period saw a boom in immigration and construction, shaping Winnipeg's cultural and architectural landscape. However, the city also faced challenges, including the 1919 general strike, a pivotal event in Canadian labor history. Mike, did you know that Winnipeg was once known as Chicago of the North? Was it because of the wind? Because it's a windy city, just like you don't want to stand out on Portage of Maine in the middle of winter because the wind will freeze you to death? Actually, that is one reason, but the average wind speed is one kilometer more in Winnipeg than it is in Chicago. But Oh, wow. I know. Don't ask me why I know this stuff. It, it might be hard to believe that in the early 20th century, Winnipeg and Chicago were rivals. Of course, Chicago won, and perhaps the writing was on the wall at the very beginning because Winnipeg was called Chicago of the North. Chicago wasn't called Winnipeg of the South. <laughs> right. Yeah. Can you imagine? Winnipeg of the South. Um, no, no, I can't imagine. <laughs> The first time I went to Winnipeg, I actually fell in love with the old architecture. Mm -hmm. 
It turns out that um, the old style buildings there, Winnipeg and Chicago actually had a lot of architects from Chicago worked in the peg and vice versa that made the city, the early buildings in the cities look similar. Oh, cool. And they've even shot movies in Winnipeg faking that it's Chicago. Uh, yeah. one, one that I've not seen called Shall We Dance with, with J-Lo and Richard Gere. Well, I can tell you I haven't seen that either. Probably for obvious reasons. <laughs> I probably won't either. Right. And that poor gerbil. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, Winnipeg has grown as a vibrant multicultural city in recent decades. It's known for its diverse cultural scene, including the Winnipeg Art Gallery, the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, and the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. The city is also a center for education and industry with a strong focus on aerospace finance, and information technology. Winnipeg has been characterized by its resilience and adaptability throughout its history, reflecting its inhabitants' diverse heritage and spirit. You know I have a place in my heart for the peg. Um, yeah, you definitely do. I, I was there a lot. I used to do the advertising for MTS, which is the it was the provincial telecom company. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. And I did the website for the Canadian Museum for Human Rights, so... Mm -hmm. For a couple of years, I was, I was there every two weeks. And, you know, from my experience, the people really are salt of the earth. Like, they literally yeah. are like, come over for dinner. But they're also famously frugal in Winnipeg. Interesting. Okay. I actually got a call from a total stranger in Winnipeg this week. Hmm. So I pick up the phone, and this old codger asks who I am. And I'm like, you're calling me. Who are you? <laughs> and he goes, this, right. this is blah, blah, blah from Winnipeg. He's like, I have your phone number on my phone bill and i don't think i called you i think it's a mistake and i said uh yeah no i don't recognize your number i'm like how much did they charge you and he goes half a cent <laughs> i thought it was funny that he'd call me long distance to uh ask who i was because there was a half a cent on his bill <laughs> right oh dear or maybe it was five cents. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, look after the pennies and the pounds will keep care of themselves. Exactly. I drove through Winnipeg in the summer of 2018 and spent a night there on my return trip across the country. On my way back from a meetup with several Dark Poutine listeners, I drove around a bit to get a feel for the city. Although a significant urban center, Winnipeg maintains a small-town, rough-and-ready frontier feel highlighted for me by an impromptu Saturday night drag race from an intersection between two large 4x4 pickup trucks on one of the city's busiest main streets. Winnipeg's history, like many cities, has marked several notable true crime incidents. Many we have yet to cover on Dark Poutine, and I promise they're on the list. One of the earliest and most politically charged crimes in Winnipeg's history was the 1870 execution of Thomas Scott, he was an Irish Protestant who was involved in the Red River Rebellion against Louis Riel's provisional government. Scott's execution by firing squad, ordered by Riel, was controversial and had lasting political ramifications, including fueling tensions between the English and French-speaking populations in Canada. While not a traditional crime event, the Winnipeg General Strike of 1919 saw significant law enforcement involvement, 
What began as a peaceful strike for workers' rights turned violent when Royal Northwest Mounted Police charged into a crowd of strikers, leading to what is known as Bloody Saturday. This event highlighted the social and economic tensions of the time. In episode 109, we covered the case of Earl Leonard Nelson, the Dark Strangler. Nelson was a notorious American serial killer who traveled to Winnipeg, where he committed at least two murders. He was eventually captured, and his crimes became one of the early examples of serial murder in North American criminal history. In 1984, perhaps more than any crime in recent history, the city was deeply affected by the tragic case of Candace Dirksen, a 13-year-old girl who was found murdered in a shed after being missing for several weeks. This case remained unsolved for many years, causing prolonged anguish for the community and her family. It wasn't until 22 years later that a man was charged with her murder. In 2011, after a five-week trial, he was found guilty and sentenced to 25 years without parole. He appealed, and a retrial ended with an acquittal on October 18, 2017. The case remains, officially at least, unsolved. A spate of bank and armored car robberies around the city over several years in the late 1990s and early 2000s had earned an as-yet-unnamed perpetrator the moniker the Yuletide Bandit and had caught the attention of media and Winnipeg residents. But not all the robberies later attributed to the same perpetrator occurred at Christmas time. He had a long criminal history. After a break-and-enter of an outdoor supply store had netted the wannabe bank robber several firearms, including a Chinese assault rifle, 14 handguns of different makes, and three shotguns, the robberies began in the summer of 1995. On August 15th, two bank branches in Winnipeg experienced alarming situations involving a man wearing a disguise, leading to a thwarted robbery and a successful heist within a short time frame. The first incident occurred at the Bank of Montreal on Marion Street, Around 1 p.m., tellers Maureen and Margaret noticed a suspicious man wearing a woman's wig and a fake mustache holding an envelope and seemingly waiting for service. Maureen, sensing danger, discreetly moved to call the police. The man, noticing he was under scrutiny, abruptly left the bank before committing any crime. The police arrived quickly but were unable to locate him. Shortly after, at around 1.30 p.m., the same man entered the Assiniboine Credit Union on St. Mary's Road. Marilyn, a teller at this branch, immediately felt uneasy upon seeing him. The man handed her a large envelope with a note demanding $4,000 in cash, warning her not to trigger any alarms as he claimed to be monitoring police bans. Fearing for her safety and that of customers, Marilyn complied handing over $2,847. The robber then left the scene calmly, with most people in the bank unaware of the robbery. Why would he ask specifically for $4,000? That is a good question. Perhaps it was a number that he thought he might be able to get away with that the teller might have had in the uh, in her drawer kind of thing, or... Maybe he needed a down payment for his car or something. That was $4,000. Or two Armani suits. Or is it uh, after like 5000 or something? It's like grand larceny or something like that. So he's like trying to... So it's like if I get caught, it's going to be like not the next one up, even though it was at gunpoint. 
Well, theft under five thousand is a thing. Maybe that's maybe maybe that's what his thinking was. <laughs> yeah, but I don't I don't think it matters with armed robbery. <laughs> I think I, he's probably not the brightest. So if you commit armed robbery for two dollars, I'm pretty sure it's the same. Yeah. Both of these incidents were quickly linked by the police, who rushed to the credit union following the robbery. Despite the efforts of employees to draw attention to the robber's escape route he managed to evade immediate capture. The day's events highlighted the robber's boldness and the challenges bank employees face in handling such stressful and dangerous situations. Some of the crimes took place outside of Winnipeg. In July 1996, the bandit successfully carried out two robberies in Calgary on the same day without elaborate disguises, simply using sunglasses and a baseball cap, terrifying the bank tellers. Another event, not known to be related until the bad guy's capture, occurred on the evening of September 10, 1997. In Winnipeg, just before midnight, police responded to a disturbance at a home on College Avenue in the North End. While two officers were inside taking statements, their cruiser parked outside was struck by shotgun fire. The police recognized the sound, drew their weapons, and cautiously exited the house to investigate, but found no one. They discovered nine holes in the cruiser's door and three spent shotgun shells nearby. Additionally, seven holes were found in the home's vinyl siding, with pellets having penetrated the living room window, struck the concrete steps, and lodged in a flower pot. On New Year's Day 1998, police investigated a break-in at a Walmart store on St. Mary's Road in Winnipeg. Someone had triggered an alarm. They found a smashed display case in the sporting goods department. Missing were six 12-gauge shotguns, and a Remington Viper 22 caliber rifle. Listening to a police scanner, the burglar timed his escape perfectly, leaving just before the police arrived. First, I had no idea that there were Walmarts in Canada as early as 1998. Mm-hmm, there were. I didn't live here. So I, I, no. I, when I moved back, they were here. I'm like, that's weird. Walmarts in Canada. Right. And second, I had no idea that a store like Walmart can sell guns in Canada. I don't know if they can anymore. Okay. Uh, I haven't seen guns at my local Walmart, but, you know, I, I do see them at other stores. Uh, it depends on, I think it depends on where you are. I know nothing of Walmart other than it keeps the riffraff out of Urban Fair. <laughs> oh, boy. Elitist. <laughs> you know, I'm joking. I, I, go. I do, I do, I'm, and so am I. I go to the Costco. With the $1 hot dogs, which are amazing. But I have it delivered because I don't have a car. And like, you do buy... you have your $1 hot dog delivered too? I don't eat, no. There's a Costco like less than a, a kilometer from your house and you have it delivered? Yeah, because I don't have a car. And you buy... You can, there's a, there are these amazing inventions called bags. When you buy... Right? Okay, I'm going to get bleach at Costco, right? Yeah. And it's a box of three. So bleach bleach <laughs> and toilet paper is larger than I am from Costco. It's like you need a pallet. <laughs> no, exactly. Like, it, it literally, yeah. I've tried. I, I, I went there, and I was like, I couldn't carry everything home. I'm like, God damn it. Well, after the break-in, there were tire tracks, but no fingerprints or traceable footprints. The theft of weapons was particularly concerning, as they weren't likely destined for a harmless collection, but rather for rapid sale or modification for criminal use on the streets. 
On January 12, 1998, the bandit successfully carried out his fifth and most lucrative bank robbery in Winnipeg to date, stealing $5,389. Four days later, emboldened by his success, he targeted the Toronto Dominion Bank on St. Mary's Road. Wearing a white ski mask and wielding a sawed-off shotgun loaded with rock salt to prevent lethal injury, according to him later, the robber leaped over the counter, demanding money from a teller. He personally collected the cash to avoid dye packs and fled with $3,100. However, the bandit left a shoe print from a Nike sneaker behind. But, due to the popularity of the shoe brand, the print was not of much use to the investigators. I remember watching a show that said if you, you want help in not getting caught, to drive the most common car, wear the most common shoes, and the most common clothes. Well, then I probably won't get caught doing anything because that's pretty much how I dress. I am like the common man's common man. What's the most common car? Is it like a Ford Escort or something? I don't know. Do they still make Ford Escorts? My mom had one. <laughs> I don't think they make a Ford Escort. I think it's something else now. It's I'll, like a Focus. Also, Focus. when you're reading that bit, I looked at like his first stealing $5,389. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, oh my God, he's even taking like the coins. And then I realized, no, there were bills back then, I think. Because now. No, there was loonies at that point. Was, was there? there? So, so, so if it was $5,389, he took a loony as well. For sure, at some point. <laughs> Here's the loony. Here's the loony. Oh boy. Emboldened by his successes, the bandit hit four Winnipeg financial institutions in March and April of 1998 robbing three credit unions and a TD branch. On August 9, 1988, the bandit executed a successful yet chaotic armed robbery against a Loomis armored truck outside a CIBC bank in Winnipeg. The Loomis team, consisting of Alan Weeb, Mike Bosek, and Shauna Martins, was collecting night deposits around 11 p.m. when a man, hiding under a sheet and dressed in black with a balaclava, ambushed them as they exited the bank with around $6,400. The robber, armed with a sawed-off shotgun and a forty-five caliber Beretta, confronted the guards. In a tense encounter, he fired his shotgun but missed Bosek, who returned fire without hitting the masked gunman. Martins managed to lock herself inside the bank and called 911. Bosek, after a fall, found himself cornered in a dead-end lane at the end of the bandit's shotgun. The robber fled with the stolen money when he heard police sirens approaching, leaving Bosek unharmed. Despite the violence, no one was physically injured during the incident. On the evening of October 15, 1998, the bandit robbed the farmer's supply store on Nairn Avenue, which was moderately busy at the time. There were many shoppers, including children, in the store. The bandit entered the store wearing a balaclava and a hooded sweatshirt armed with his shotgun. The robber created a commotion, threatening the customers and staff while demanding no one follow him. He then swiftly stole two 12-gauge Remington shotguns from a shelf and fled. Wow, he's really getting bolder and bolder each time, isn't he? And I'm wondering why this guy needs so many shotguns. It seems like every time he robs a sporting goods store, he's stealing shotguns. He needs really one well, to do his job. For the collection. It's the collection. When my father died, he had like 16 guns. Yeah. Maybe he was selling them, like he was selling them for drugs and booze and stuff. Who knows? There were three more robberies in 1999, and one was a biggie. 
On September 2, 1999, an armed robbery of a Loomis armored car occurred at the Unicity Shopping Center in Winnipeg. Witnesses described the chaotic escape of the robber who nearly collided with pedestrians and stumbled while fleeing with two bags of money estimated to be around $100,000. Loomis guards Scott Delph and Claude Van Dale recounted the event, with Delph being confronted in the back of the truck by the masked robber wielding a shotgun. Van Dale attempted to drive away during the robbery, but the thief jumped out with the cash. The suspect's descriptions varied among witnesses, with some noting dark facial hair and a stocky build. The robber's getaway car, a stolen 1993 Plymouth Acclaim, was later found with various items inside but no useful fingerprints. An intriguing find was a Winnipeg Sun newspaper dated after the car's theft, suggesting the robber kept up with local news. Despite efforts, the police had little to work on. They notified airports and border officials and canvassed the area but found no leads, continuing the search for the elusive bandit. In mid-December of that year, the bandit hit a local spy store where he made off with bulletproof vests and other body armor. He had another big heist planned. This time, he'd use a partner. On December 23, 1999, in Winnipeg, two masked men, one armed with a shotgun, attempted to rob a Loomis truck in a mall parking lot. Initially incredulous at the scene unfolding, at 11.15 a.m., witnesses quickly called 911. The bandit tried to access the truck's rear door while his partner attempted the side door. However, their plan was foiled as the doors were locked and the guard inside the truck did not engage with them. The two men fled empty-handed in a waiting van. Unaware of the attempted robbery, the Loomis employees drove away but were soon stopped by police who had been alerted by witnesses. The bandit, frustrated by the failed attempt and his decision to involve a partner, returned to his previous strategy of working alone. He later admitted that he numbed his disappointment with alcohol and marijuana, quickly shifting focus to planning his next heist. Wait a minute, the drivers didn't even realize that two masked men with guns are trying to get into their money van? Yeah. How is that possible? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe they didn't have cameras everywhere on their Loomis vans at that point. I'm not really sure what, why they wouldn't have known that. But it's interesting. Doesn't make me feel like my money would be secure with them. <laughs> well, I don't think you need to be concerned because it's all insured, but that's also the bank robbers, you know, refrain. Well, it's insured, it's victimless crime, but it's not. Like, you're terrifying the people that you're stealing it from, so anyway. And banks are people, too. Right. <laughs> the robber's next attempt at heist was the first that led to his eventual nickname, the Yuletide Bandit. On Christmas Eve, 1999, Dale Lagimodier and his Loomis team, already on high alert due to a recent robbery attempt, arrived at a Walmart in Winnipeg for a cash pickup. As they cautiously exited the store with money, the bandit ambushed them with a Glock pistol. The gunman demanded entry into the armored truck, but when Lagimodier who hadn't drawn his gun backed away, the robber opened fire. A shootout then ensued between the two. Nearby, a family shopping for Christmas caught themselves in the crossfire, including a teenager named Jason and his sister. Jason felt something hit his elbow during the chaos. Lagamodier aimed to shoot the bandit but missed, 
and the robber, wearing body armor, managed to escape to his getaway car without the money. The aftermath saw Lagamodier discovering he was shot in the leg as police and an ambulance arrived at the scene. Officers found a bullet hole in Jason's jacket sleeve indicating he had narrowly escaped injury. What was left of the spent bullet lay at his feet. You know, I want to sing this song. It's Christmas time and there's lots of reasons to be afraid. <laughs> right. <laughs> Winnipeg, a guy's doing bank raids. Yeah, I mean, this is Christmas. Imagine you're like, doity doy, like getting ready for your Christmas cheer with your, with your mom getting last minute gifts and all of a sudden there's a bloody shootout and you have a hole in your jacket from a bullet. That would be terrifying. That would be. It's, it's insanity because, you know, you know, Christmas Eve, you have that sort of, a lot of people that, there's that feeling of like warmth in your hearts and it's that time of year. It's, this is not, right. so, not something you'd expect. I wonder if this is why partially that this guy is choosing this time of year because it's like it's going to create so much pandemonium. Yeah, maybe. But also, if I was that kid, I'd comp- totally save, save that jacket and frame it as some sort of memento mori that I avoided death. 100%. Maybe his mom like framed it for him for next Christmas. Here's a reminder of the trauma we went through last Christmas. Merry Christmas. Mommy loves you. Drama gifts. Pretty sure that didn't happen. I'm sorry. Jason, the teenager, we're laughing. But we're glad you're okay. A Loomis armored car robbery in May 2000 netted the bandit 18 grand. On December 12, 2000, a dramatic shootout occurred at the Polo Park Mall during a daytime armored car heist. The incident started when the robber, armed with a handgun, confronted a Securicor cash services guard outside the CIBC branch and demanded cash. This confrontation quickly escalated into a gunfight, with a total of eight shots being exchanged between the robber and the armored car guard. The incident, of course, caused panic among the holiday shoppers, who screamed and sought cover as the gunfire erupted, the mall's Christmas music playing in the background of the gunfight. According to witnesses, the sound of the shots resembled explosions, and the chaos led to a state of alarm and confusion throughout the mall. In a Globe and Mail article, Steve Monk, a witness to the incident, described hearing a fusillade of what he estimated to be at least a dozen or more shots. The robber, despite being wounded in the exchange, managed to flee the scene with a bag of cash. He left a trail of blood behind him, indicating substantial bleeding as he made his escape through a store and eventually out through the back exit of an MTS phone store. The police launched a manhunt following the robbery, expressing concern for the well-being of the injured suspect, who again managed to evade capture. Remarkably, no one else was injured in the gun battle. The incident, occurring in the busy shopping period leading up to Christmas, left a lasting impression on those who witnessed it, with many people experiencing the shock and fear of being caught in the crossfire of a violent crime. DNA left behind by the bleeding gunman was compared to samples of known criminals across the country without success. The press had now begun calling the man the Yuletide Bandit. And more after a quick break. Are you ready to step beyond the veil of reality? I'm Morgan Knutson. And I'm Mike Brown. We're the hosts of the podcast, Supernatural Circumstances. Here, we delve into the unexplained mysteries 
that have captivated minds for centuries. From ghostly encounters to cryptid sightings, each episode explores the unknown. Join us as we interview experts, skeptics, and witnesses, exploring different perspectives on the paranormal. Whether it's a poltergeist, a mysterious disappearance, or an otherworldly visitation, in each show, we bring you mind-bending tales with in-depth analysis by expert guests. So dim the lights, open your mind, and prepare to question everything you thought you knew about the supernatural, paranormal, and the unknown. Don't miss Supernatural Circumstances. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts on this episode to this point? This is a lot of holdups and shootings for Winnipeg, right? Yeah. And it's actually, now I'm starting to get the Chicago of the North, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. Like uh, Al Capone reasons or gangsters or whatever. Yeah, and unfortunately, Chicago has a, a high sort of shooting incidents in the last number of years, right? Mm-hmm. It's not a huge city. Winnipeggers no. must have been freaking out. We aren't used to this much gun waving in Canada. It had to be terrifying. I mean, especially, like I say, around Christmas time when there's families everywhere and, you know, arg. The bandit robbed a people's jewelry store in March 2001, and over the next year into 2002, he continued his spree of robberies, hitting another armored car and returning to a sporting goods store he'd robbed before. On April 7, 2002 in Winnipeg, Richard Long, a Secure Corps guard and Canadian Forces veteran, experienced an armed robbery attempt at a Safeway store parking lot. As he and his partner Serge Lachance were conducting a routine cash pickup, the bandit disguised in a balaclava ambushed them with a shotgun. Long, caught off guard, exchanged gunfire with the bandit, who had meticulously planned the heist but was hindered by slippery conditions and quick response from the guards. After a prolonged chase involving Lachance driving the Secure Corps truck after him, the bandit managed to escape with $31,000, despite his van being damaged in the pursuit. The incident, which unfolded on a busy shopping day and involved numerous gunshots, miraculously resulted in no injuries. Witnesses, including James Van Santen, who found himself in the crossfire, were left shaken. The event underscored the increasing violence and audacity of the bandit's criminal acts. Everything unraveled less than a month later. The bandit was high on cocaine and frustrated after being dumped by his girlfriend, who worked in a massage parlor in Winnipeg's Chinatown. He took her hostage on May 1st, 2002, barricading himself in the business overnight. The 12-hour standoff with police was later retold in Season 1, Episode 14 of 72 Hours True Crime, which you can see on Amazon Prime Video or YouTube. 
Over the duration of the standoff, police learned that the man in the massage parlor holding the hostage was named Michael David Cernick. He was 32. He also admitted he was the Yuletide Bandit, the man they'd been after since his crime spree began seven years before. When he finally fell asleep, the Winnipeg police stormed the building and took the bandit into custody. In jail, Michael Cernick started talking, and he blathered away, admitting to numerous crimes, including 24 armed robberies since 1995. Initial charges, according to the Winnipeg Sun, were nearly five dozen. A DNA comparison with that collected at an earlier crime scene confirmed that Cernick was in fact the Yuletide bandit. He'd even showed the police the scar on his leg from the bullet wound where he'd been shot. A tumultuous family environment marked Michael Cernick's childhood. His parents, Virginia, Alice Jones, and Mike Joseph Peter Cernick, were married in 1969 in Winnipeg when Virginia was pregnant with Michael. He was born on August 26 of that year, and then Brent Stephen, his brother, in 1971. The family faced financial difficulties and frequent arguments often exacerbated by his father's alcohol use. Virginia worked as a receptionist and Mike Sr. as a butcher and meat manager, but domestic life remained strained. The children occasionally urged their parents to divorce due to ongoing conflicts. In 1989, the situation escalated when Virginia reported Mike Sr. for assault, leading to his arrest and a restraining order. She filed for divorce, painting a picture of a violent, alcohol-fueled marriage. The ensuing legal battle was intense, both parties filing affidavits accusing each other of violence and financial recklessness. The conflict continued until 1990 when Virginia withdrew her legal action and they chose to handle their issues privately. This decision left unresolved the impact of their troubled marriage on their children. Michael's anger with his father, he claimed, was the fuel that led to his hatred of authority and willingness to fire on armed security guards, as well as police officers. He'd fantasized at 14 about becoming a drug kingpin and read voraciously. It was after his parents' tumultuous divorce he'd begun drinking and drugging in earnest. He'd blown the $300,000 proceeds of his crimes on cocaine, alcohol, and services of sex workers. Cernick said he had led a double life, appearing as a devoted family member and working as a butcher with his father, a job which he hated. Pleading guilty to 35 charges, Michael Cernick, the Yuletide bandit, was sentenced to 21 years and six months in prison, fittingly on Christmas Eve 2002. Considering time served for his series of more than 20 robberies, mainly during the Christmas season in Winnipeg, this sentence was slightly less than the life imprisonment with a maximum of 10 years without parole sought by the Crown. According to the Globe and Mail, Cernick, 33, would not be eligible for parole for over seven years. Manitoba's Justice Department's Director of Appeals, Don Slew, expressed satisfaction with the verdict, noting it would relieve bank employees and armored car guards. Judge Charles Newcomb highlighted the miraculous fact that no shoppers were injured during Cernick's daring and often violent robberies, which included shooting at police before his arrest. Judge Newcomb emphasized the seriousness of Cernick's repeated armed robberies and the need to protect police officers from such criminals, initially targeting banks and credit unions. Cernick later shifted to robbing armored cars, preferring to confront male guards over female bank tellers. Cernick spoke during a 90-minute parole hearing in April 2016. 
According to Mike McIntyre and the Winnipeg Free Press, quote, I terrorized so many people. I put so many innocent people's lives at risk. Over and over again, said Cernick. I terrorized the city. The eyes, Michael Cernick said. He can't stop thinking of the eyes. They belonged to a young woman working in one of the banks he robbed. This one was different than the others. She was younger than most victims. He stared down between 1995 and 2002. There was a look of genuine fear, of terror, in her eyes. I still remember that girl's face, the teller, Cernick told two parole board officials who were appearing in front of him via video conferencing link from Saskatoon. These are the things that haunt me now, he continued. Cernick vividly described another robbery where a mother and her two young children happened to be in the bank. That hadn't been part of the plan. At the time, he really didn't care about that, about anything. I made a decision to consciously shut it out. I became more cold, more calculated, Cernick said. End quote. It sounds to me like he's just like, oh, well, I didn't care at the time, but I really do now that it benefits me when I, <laughs> it's time to get out of jail. I always find it fascinating with when these people talk. They're so unspecial and so unidimensional. And so obvious that it's like cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, we've heard the same sort of speech from perpetrators again and again and again, right? Mm -hmm. Again, here we have a grown-ass man talking about how, you know, he had daddy issues and that's the reason. Well, guess what? You're all grown up now <laughs> and you're to blame, not your parents. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, and the whole like, her eyes will haunt me. Well, let me call you a wambulance. Yeah, right. Stop and think of you standing over her with a gun and how that haunts her, right? Right, exactly. Before you do the stupid thing that you're doing. Ugh. Wambulance. <laughs> a wambulance. Cernick's request for parole was denied at that point. He was determined an undue risk to society if released on day parole. But a year later, he was freed. In April 2017, Michael Cernick was released from prison after serving 15 of his 21-year sentence. He was convicted for over 20 armed robberies and firearms charges and for wounding two people. He was currently residing in a Winnipeg community facility under 24-hour monitoring and required to report to a parole officer. Although the parole board deemed his risk manageable, police remained cautious. He was eligible for full parole since 2010, but remained incarcerated until that release. He had to adhere to strict conditions, including no drug or alcohol use. He had to participate in counseling with any violations of his conditions, leading to an immediate return to prison. His complete sentence ends this year, 2023. According to Global News, quote, The offender is well aware that he is being watched, said Sergeant Scrabeck. When he leaves the residence, he needs to report where he's going who he's going to be with. He needs to inform everybody what programs he's taking and when he is going to be back. All of those people are going to be communicating 24-7. The article continues. If any of his release restrictions are breached, an immediate Canada-wide arrest warrant will be issued and he'll be taken into custody. Still, officers said the fear and terror he inflicted during his crime sprees will always be on their minds. Quote, Officers aren't going to forget that incident, Sergeant Scrabeck. The officers that were involved or the ones that have been hired since, everybody knows about this incident. There's always going to be a concern for safety. He's always going to be in the back of everybody's mind. 
But at the same time, he's a human, and we need to give him that opportunity to participate in programs and reintegrate into the community and not sabotage those efforts, end quote. In a CBC article published on April 25, 2017, former security guard Richard Long expressed frustration over the early parole of Michael Cernick. Long recalled the gunfight where he narrowly escaped death thanks to a protective vest that saved him from a shotgun blast. He was shot in the back after emptying his gun at Cernick, who was heavily armored. Long reflected on how the incident could have left his children fatherless and robbed him of 15 years with his family, including time with his young grandchildren. Despite his long sentence, Cernick was granted early release. Long expressed his disappointment with the parole board's decision, noting Cernick's early release despite his extensive criminal record, including 21 counts of armed robbery. He mentioned the lasting impact of Cernick's crimes on the victims, highlighting the trauma experienced by bank tellers who couldn't return to work due to the incidents. Long said he believes that Cernick owes an apology to these victims for the damage caused by his criminal actions. Of course he does, and and I don't understand why this guy would get an early release. It's not like he just did one bank robbery. Hmm. Like, an early release for this guy seems off to me. What do you think? It seems so random. It's like, he's saying all the right things, so let's just let him go. That that seems to be what the parole board says. Uh, but I don't know what their criteria is. I might be uneducated in my read. I don't know. It could be a number of things. The p- parole board's starting to sound like leadership of universities. <laughs> oh, don't even get me going on that. Don't even get me going on that, because uh, as you know what my heritage is, I am not very impressed with what I heard the other day. I cannot... Okay, that's a whole other episode. I just cannot believe the insanity of these people who are running universities. Anyway, that that, that that's a different story. We'll, we'll do that next year. <laughs> Hopefully we don't have to. Hopefully all this stuff is over by then. Absolutely. Anyway, Mike McIntyre's 2004 book on Cernick's multi-year crime spree, The Yuletide Bandit, The Seven-Year Search for a Serial Criminal, is a great place to read more about the events mentioned in this episode. And in our show notes, you can find a link to purchase Mike McIntyre's book at Amazon. So there we have it. There's the true crime portion of our Christmas episode. This is our seventh Christmas episode, Matthew. The seventh one that Dark Poutine has done. I think it's my third, isn't it? Something like that. It's up there. It might be even your fourth. I don't know. It's it's definitely your third. Wow. But, uh, wow. So we're going to lighten things up a little bit. It's Christmas after all. So I wrote my own take on a well-known Christmas poem. Here's Twas the Night Before Christmas, Dark Poutine 2023 edition. <laughs> I was doing some scratching there for you. Twas the night before Christmas, in Vancouver no less, at the Eagle's Nest condo in holiday dress. Mike from Dark Poutine with his cat's egg and waffles had just settled down with poutine and truffles. Matthew and Justin in their abode so grand with Steve the Bulldog, a merry little band. Stockings hung by the fire with care and flair in hopes that St. Nick soon would be there. In the kitchen, there's laughter and Justin's good cheer as he bakes butter tarts and the tortier so dear. Mike, with his tales both eerie and keen, was prepping a podcast, a true crime scene. 
When out on the balcony arose such a clatter, Matthew spilled his eggnog to see what was the matter. Away to the window he flew like a moose, tore open the shutters and yelled, What the deuce? The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below, when what to his wondering eyes did appear but a sleigh and eight reindeer in old hockey gear, with a little old driver so lively and quick, they knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Gretzky, now Crosby, now Howe and Orr, on Linden, on Lafleur, on Lemieux and Bork. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet an obstacle, mount to the sky, so up to the condo the courses they flew, with a sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas too. And they heard in a twinkling, they heard on the roof, prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As they drew in their heads and were turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur, from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot, a bundle of toys he had flung on his back. And he looked like a trader, just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was white as the snow. He had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a jar of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and they laughed when they saw him in spite of themselves. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave them to know they had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings and then turned with a jerk. Then laying his finger aside of his nose, giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But they heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night, eh? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so you had you had some problems with my uh, my poetry. I have some corrections for you. Okay. All right. First of all, I hate eggnog. Uh, you, you, Matthew hates eggnog. Yep. Secondly, so maybe that's why you spilled it. Did you spill it in your computer? Yeah. <laughs> Please, oh my God! Can you imagine? Secondly, Justin does not cook. Well, yeah. <laughs> so that would be me. Third, Steve would eat your cats. Yes. And I don't have a chimney. Right. <laughs> and I'm guessing those are all hockey players. I recognize Gretzky. <laughs> yes, they absolutely are hockey players, yeah. When I first read this, I thought you'd talk about Cindy Lafleur from, from from the Yumber Yard. Um, but she can claim that as well. She can definitely claim that if she'd like. But uh, yeah, so we want to say happy holidays. Whatever it is that you're celebrating is fine with us. You can celebrate the hell out of it. Uh, just make sure that you have the merriest of all those things. And give your loved ones a hug from us. And uh, if we could, we'd hug you all, but we'd probably come down with something because somebody's bound to be sick at this time of year. Stay safe, everybody. And that's it for Dark Routine episode 299, Holiday 2023, Winnipeg's Yuletide Bandit. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1877-327-5786 or 1877-DARK. 
PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Here's our first voicemail. Oh, hey, fellas. It's uh, the devil here just calling to say hello. Hello. And uh, to comment on the Montreal Massacre episode, I have to say that it's such grim shit um, to have so many wonderful women um, taken in their prime. That said, uh, the perpetrator of this heinous crime, these heinous crimes, is not here in hell. He's not even welcome here in hell. In fact, he can eat a bag of dicks. That's right, I said it. He can eat a bag of dicks. Um, anywho, I uh, just on a lighter note, I wanted to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays from Satan Claus. Ho, 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 ho. Give my love to Steve. Big scratches for Steve, okay? Satan away. <laughs> well, there you go. So Satan called to wish us a Merry Christmas. Isn't, isn't Satan Claus Krampus? No, I don't think so. Okay. Krampus is somebody different, but anyway. But uh, yeah, it, it's true. You know, I was talking to somebody about the episode this week, and mm-hmm. uh, everyone says what Satan just did there. You know, yep. it, it it's the these are like smart women who had like really bright futures ahead of themselves, right? Yep. And it's it's it was such a waste of life. It was so sad. Yeah. <sighs> really was. It was one of the roughest episodes I've had to voice in a long time, just because of the the sheer amount of senselessness. Yeah. I mean, it, it, every murder seems senseless, but this that that many lives just snuffed out and like you said in their prime, it, it is just yeah. I, I I can't even, you know. Oy. But anyway, thank you. Thank you, Santa Claus, for calling. We always like when you call. That, that was Satan, not Santa Claus. That was Satan. Didn't I say Saint, 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 Satan You said Claus? Santa Claus, yeah, but that's oh. okay. Whatever. Santa Claus, Satan, same thing. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm Anna. I'm originally from Bowen Island, which is uh, the place where you did the Jody Hendrickson podcast. Um, I want to quickly thank you for covering that, actually. Um, that definitely haunts Bowen Island, and I was there, although I was quite little, when it happened. I know my parents were affected because they were at a party pretty much right next door to us that night, and Bowen Islanders, they say that they they always keep their eyes peeled, and it doesn't get that much coverage, so thank you so much. Um, I just finished... Uh, listening to your December 6th massacre podcast. And I want to thank you for covering that too, because I'm 20 and almost everyone that I've talked to about it on December 6th said that they didn't actually know about it. And I am a part of a women in STEM group uh, for my university. And we were featured speakers at a vigil that day. And it was just so touching, and you covered it so respectfully. Um, Yeah, so thank you so much. I want to know what job you think I have as a 20-year-old university student. What's my side job? Uh, Thanks. Uh, Go take shit in your hat. Thank you. That's really sad to me that people don't know what happened on December 6th that year. Glad we can keep the story of the victims 
alive so people mm. remember them. Do our own, our, our, own, our own little bit. So what do you think she does there as a side gig uh, while she's a STEM student? First of all, I'm fascinated. So I can see Bowen Island from my window. Mm-hmm. Not today, it's a bit foggy, but I'm fascinated by who lives on Bowen Island. I haven't mm. been yet. Oh, you haven't? I haven't been, and it, and it, it's I, in my head. It's this like magical wonderland place. It's not. I I I was there for shooting Wicker Man. Oh, really? Uh, used to have to go there at like five o'clock in the morning on a boat. So what Anna does? She started the Italian gondola experience between uh, Coal Harbor, which is uh, here downtown Vancouver, uh, 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 where you, port, I guess, and Bowen Island. So. She has a that's really a long. That's a long paddle. Well, no, it's not a paddle. She's a really, really long gondola stick to get oh. to the bottom, right? And oh dear, that is very long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, she, so her upper arm strength is quite, quite good. Quite good. <laughs> uh, hopefully, she doesn't skip leg day because then she'd just look weird. No, she 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 does skip leg day, so she's like top heavy, tiny little toothpick legs and big giant arms and she she has a, a little guy on the gondola as well playing a ukulele and doing like when the moon hits your eye uh to entertain the people while they're coming to vancouver from bowen island well there you have it that's kind of fun all right we've got one more hi my name is peyton thomas and the last name is relevant because i was just listening to your episode on heather thomas um i was uh eight years old living in langley at the time she was murdered and close enough in the region that um, kids at school would come up to me on the playground and say, I'm sorry about your sister. Like we, we weren't related, but we did have that common surname. And I think a lot of people just assumed. Um, so it, it, it stuck out in my mind as a memorable time, which is why I went looking to read more about it. And also because my father, um, once Shane Mode was caught and he was on trial, my father decided that it would be a good idea to take like eight-year-old me uh, to, into downtown Vancouver to the Supreme Court to watch the trial happen. So I actually sat for one day of the trial um, and watched. I, I, I obviously don't remember exactly what happened or what I saw, but like Shane Mode was very much there. I was very much eight years old in the courtroom watching this happen. And what I do remember is that there was um, there was a law library at the Supreme Court, which had some computers on it. And during a recess from the court, my dad let me go to the law library with the computers. And I looked up um, American Girl Dolls and Nickelodeon games because I was bored of the courtroom drama. So um, that's my story. Um, thank you for doing justice to Heather's story and making sure that she's not forgotten. I, uh, I do think about her a lot. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, that one was episode 16 and the one that, uh, the caller talked about previously, Anna, about, uh, Jody Henriksen was, uh, episode 79. So yeah, if you want to go back and listen to those, those are the episode numbers. But, uh, yeah, I can't imagine going to, uh, a court room when I was eight. I could barely sit still. Uh, <laughs> I was always being told to be still, so. Well, that that's funny. Uh, Peyton, great name, first of all, mm-hmm. um, became a 
entertainment and copyright lawyer because she combined that memory of being in the courts and playing Nickelodeon. Those, and Nickelodeon. <laughs> yeah. So that's what she does for a living now. That's interesting. That's she also good has stuff. a great. She actually has a great voice for radio as well. She definitely does. She yeah. should do her own podcast. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. No patrons this week, but we do have Donut Money Donor, and it is our good friend, Jennifer Hesse. Jen! And she says, finally, I'm caught up now that I'm commuting again after three months of unemployment. We're so glad you have a job again. Thank you for keeping me company on the road. What's Jennifer Hesse's new job, Matthew? I'm just curious. Is it Hesse or Hess? Hesse, yeah. Well, she is currently about five blocks away from me. She's visiting Vancouver this weekend. Oh, yes, I saw that. I saw that. She was asking what that big ball in the... <laughs> in the yes. Uh, yeah, it's Science World. Yeah, I'm going to give her the job as a curator of Science World. Oh, there you go. Curator <laughs> at Science World. So now she has to find out what that is because, you know, it is... Want to know how to piss off a local? How? Call it intentionally world of science instead of science world. It gets this reaction that's way beyond. That doesn't make any sense. Why Why are people freaking out about that? Like when you say world of science, like it's science world. Why do you say it like that? <laughs> so, so from then on, I always call it world of science. Oh, boy. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for your... Uh, your patronage, you. well, your donut money donor, or your donut money, because it will keep us in donuts for a while. Yeah, because uh, uh, who knows? Mike needs a donut, as does Matthew, in your new waffly uh, outfit that you're wearing, your cozy waffly thing. <laughs> Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening, and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So that's it for this episode of Dark Poutine, and we will be back on our main feed on January 15th and on the Amazon Music feed a week earlier on January 8th. So have yourselves a happy new year, and uh, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Be a good eggnog. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs>